Hello and welcome to Ghost Story Reading Club, the podcast. My name is Bella May Gray. And I'm Joran Mandik. And today we're joined in our studio by Toronto native Erin Liu. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Erin. Erin, you're a uh, historian, a philosopher, also um, an artist. She does everything, basically. <laughs> She's a prodigy, I think. <laughs> Jack of all trades. Fantastic. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very, very excited to be here. And scared, too, I hope. Really nervous. <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> okay, well, we have a couple of questions for you, just to start it off, to unnerve you as much as possible. Uh, and the first one is, what is the first time you can remember being scared? Ooh. I feel like when I was really, really scared. Okay, so I think it was when my friend made me watch The Ring. <laughs> and then um, and then it was pretty much like for the next three years, any time I was like walking in my house and the hallway lights were off, I was just like, mm, oh where's God. Samara going to show up? <laughs> ah! <laughs> anyway. That's <laughs> so. I mean, it wasn't really the first time. It was really like the first sort of period of my life. Mm -hmm. So Just, the first time it like you can remember actually something being scary, and then that like affecting the rest of your life. I mean, it was kind of like I see a dark hallway in my house. It's nine p.m. I could go to sleep. <laughs> I can retire to my room for the evening. <laughs> You know, I was I was pretty scared of. How old were you when you watched The Ring? Um, I think I was maybe thirteen years old, around that age. Right. I have a very similar story. Maybe um, it shouldn't have been as scary as as The Ring, but um, when I was nine, I watched this film. I have no idea what it's called. I couldn't even find it on the internet if I tried. Probably a good. But thing. um, in this film, there was this character called Marcy. And I think she was the victim of some bullies or something. And then she came back as this invisible Avenger. And, like, she was nasty. She wanted to kill everyone. And then there was this scene where there was this little serrated edge knife just floating oh, in the God. air. And I shat myself. <laughs> <laughs> Literally shat myself. <laughs> yeah, I was still wearing diapers at the time, so it's fine. <laughs> and, uh... I couldn't enter the the basement of my house for the next two years, being afraid of Marcy. Marcy. If I say that to any family member, they're like pissing themselves. <laughs> I shut myself and they piss themselves about it. <laughs> and how old you, were you when that happened? Nine. Nine. You were still in diapers? Formative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are holes in the story. Okay, well, I, I guess I also have a kind of similar one. Uh, I think... I mean, maybe I was around nine as well, and I watched The Birds uh. for the first time. And, I mean, even now, when I see a, any kind of flock of birds all, like, sitting on a, a playground bit of equipment or on a, like, park bench, my blood just actually runs cold. It's ridiculous. But it's funny. Those, like, first fears stay with you forever, I think. You hate creatures. Yeah, I fucking hate creatures. <laughs> we should do we should do a podcast on creatures. Mm. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should. 
Right, what's the next question we've got? The next question, which is very thematically appropriate right now, is what's the last scary movie you saw and liked? Don't say The Ring. No, it definitely wasn't that. I think that actually threw me off of the horror genre for like a long time like <laughs> potentially life i think <laughs> the last the last horror movie that i did see was actually with you guys um it was crimson peaks mm. but I, I don't know how I, I don't know if i loved it you know because i don't know how did you feel about it, it was yeah i thought it was really beautiful but i was kind of just waiting for the moment where i was really emotionally connected and afraid and traumatized or terrified or something yeah i think the i think the fact that it was set in such a different time and a different place that was difficult to relate to maybe that was one of the reasons that i i don't know kind of found it difficult and i don't know i think i'm very much more into the the whole like you know like samara could come out of your tv Ah, that's scary that is terrifying Crimson Peak, I don't think, was that scary. Either. Yeah, it, yeah. It was. It was nice to look at, though. It was. You know? It was very nice to look at. It was, it was Absolutely, rather poetic. And I, I definitely think there were moments where I jumped in my seat, and which probably both of you can attest to. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, I, I don't know if I was like terrified, but there were moments. It got me sometimes, but I'm a sucker. So, what do you do to not be scared? If you're running a risk of, of being scared. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> I got an answer for this. <laughs> um, I try to like, I don't know. If, I think this actually exacerbates the fear, but I do it anyway as a coping mechanism. I learn more about whatever I'm scared about. For instance, in my second year apartment in Montreal, we had a huge mouse problem. And... Um, <laughs> Bella hates mice. It was like not uh, really mice so much, but you don't like creatures. Rodents. We know the stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, at a certain point, I'd be like, okay, it's midnight. This is the time for the mice to come out. So like, this is their apartment now. And it was, and then it was a similar kind of thing with the ring, where I just retired to my room. Say, do you ever find any mice in your room? Sure did. Um, yeah, I found a hole one time in my room, and then one time was just reading in bed, and then what do I see come out behind my closet? Just a little mouse. Really cute, but also, like, so scary. I've never seen anything so cute and scary at the same time. Um, but anyway, my coping mechanism was to basically just learn more about it. M- learn more about mice. You know, what are they doing? Do they stand on their hind legs? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> oh, so we get to be scared and learn. I like yeah. it. They like to inhabit stoves because it's warm. Right. Fair yeah. enough. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got a whole inventory of knowledge, but I'm, I won't I won't toss it on I think now. that's a really smart coping mechanism. I don't think that it exac- exacerbates the problem. It shouldn't anyway. Isn't that the thing? You're like afraid of the things you don't know. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah, fear of the unknown. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think it did help me cope. I don't know if it... I think it still caused me to, like, obsess over these things more, but mm. perhaps it did get rid of the fear a little bit. I guess it's kind of like a form of confrontational psychology. 
Mm. You know, you confront yourself with all these facts about the thing. You learn about it. You learn that it's not as bad. They stand on their hind legs. But I know that now. So you're like, when they get onto their hind legs, you're like, oh yeah, I know. And you're not like, <laughs> oh, oh it's on its hind legs. <laughs> <laughs> there's Jimmy again. <laughs> yeah, when they get on their hind legs and charge at you, you're just like, yeah, that's totally normal and fine. Yeah, we're not going to eat my face <laughs> off at all. <laughs> yeah, we really familiarize ourselves um, with the mice in our home. Um, we even named them. Oh my god! Yeah, ne- but never name them. No, but they so all had one name because we just we only ever saw one at a time. So we were like, "There's one mouse. Its name is Diablo." <laughs> <laughs> the devil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course. Very appropriate name. Uh, I am, as many other people, also. I wouldn't say afraid of spiders, but I just find them so disgusting. Used to anyway, until I did this. Uh, interesting thing in Australia one time where I went on a so-called spider walk with this bush tucker. So like a guy that knows a lot about nature, basically. And um, he showed us all these spiders and told us all these facts about it. So I learned all kinds of stuff about spiders and afterwards I was rather fascinated with them and not at all disgusted anymore. It has since ebbed off. I'm I'm back to, they're pretty gross. But I know what to do if I, if it takes over my life i'm gonna read up i really really don't like creatures i'm just learning this because <laughs> as we were talking about spiders and then i was thinking about rats which i really hate and now i feel like i need to get my feet off the ground because i'm kind of freaking out a bit so yeah thanks guys <laughs> all right move, I'm in the moving mood. on <laughs> oh, what's the scariest sound to you scariest sound um I I don't know if this is a great answer. I've never so I've never minded like a lot of people are are like they hate um like fingernails on chalkboard or whatever. I don't mm. actually mind that. I'm but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um my radiator in my home used to, you know, I don't know if your radiator ever does this, but like make this like boom. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, just kind of like at night and randomly and like oh, a poltergeist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I always found that a little bit scary because I, I never really understood how radiators work growing up, too. So I was like, ah, there's yeah. a ghost. There's definitely a ghost. It's definitely not water or anything else. Uh, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. Super terrifying. Good answer. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and when were you scared last? Hmm. I think um, after an episode of... Have either of you watched um, Luther? No. Is it okay, so... We should? Absolutely. It's Idris Elba. Uh, oh, okay, I'm in. Netflix yeah. original. I don't know if it's a Netflix original, but it's on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I think my compensation for... My way to compensate for my dislike for horror was to just get really into like crime Mm. shows which are equally like terrifying and sometimes like really gruesome and some would argue more terrifying absolutely yeah yeah exactly so anyway i don't know what i was thinking but in any case it's already happened for the last like (laughs) i don't know 10 15 years so (laughs) too late now (laughs) yeah exactly um so for the most part luther is not so bad um but they did have this like one episode where it was like very much like a horror film actually where you know you've got this guy who literally like 
hides under the bed for the whole evening before he like gets his victim or he like hides in the attic and just like makes sounds that is terrifying yeah the thing i'm most scared of i think someone just hiding under my bed totally just like staking out (laughs) yeah so anyway this was the the character uh that i found really scary because it it was he was in all these different um settings so like under the bed in the attic in the closet kind of thing um and i had seen this episode and yeah i was just i don't know i was just in my bed and i was like what if he's in my closet? I had these two closets in my room and, um, you know, the little sliding, sliding doors. And I was like, this could be it. This could be the end. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye world. (laughs) Yeah. Nice knowing you. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that was the last time I was, I was really scared. I'm not going to watch that show. (laughs) (laughs) You can skip that episode. The rest of it is excellent. Okay, so I think it's time to get into our weeks or episodes. It's been more than one week since we produced the last episode. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, this episode's theme, which is, Bella? It's all in your head. My, my head? Y- yours. Anybody's. Anyone's. If you're listening to this right now, we're a figment of your imagination, so question everything. Yeah, are we real? Is the device you're listening through real? Wow, you made this shit. You made this shit up. Oh my god! <laughs> Why did you think of us? <laughs> All right. Um, I guess without further ado, we should play the story. Yeah. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, and this one is from 1843. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How, then, am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, It haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. 
You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single, thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And I did this for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done 
night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or... It is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple, dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what we mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder 
I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, at that dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbour. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But... For many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> When I made an end of these labours, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbour during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house, I bade them search, search well. I led them, at length, to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of my victim. 
The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard it not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark louder, 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 louder! Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. So, mm, what, are, what do we think? Mmm, <laughs> tasty. <laughs> Tasty morsel of fear. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I suppose the thing that I get most from it, and that is what ties into our theme, is that fear is so much about perception and that what is going on around you and understanding it and interpreting it and not being able to trust it, that's terrifying. Yeah. Not even being able to trust your own senses. You know what I find interesting? I am when when we first read the story, I didn't even 
make a mental note of this, but then later when I listen back, I notice like the first sentence or the second sentence, he says something about the disease and how it might have dulled his senses, but no, it sharpened them. So like he's like saying, I've actually been diagnosed with being insane. And then the story unfolds. Right. He says it's like his like ability to like oversense or something. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe it's that heightened sense of perception which led him to kind of fixate on this eye of the old man. And that also is the thing that makes him hear the beating of the heart, whether it beats or not. Right. Yeah. Heightened senses. He's deluded. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> deluded or just talented? That's very true. And, I mean, maybe all delusions are just talents, but that doesn't make them any more or less scary, I, I think. If you can't trust the way that you're interpreting things, I mean, what do you have? Yeah. You know, it seems intuitive to me and probably to you um, that this loss of reality, not knowing what's real and what's not, is terrifying. But I'm not really sure why that is. Why is it so scary to not know what's real? Well, I think there's a loneliness to it, right? That I mean, that's that's my first. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, and kind of all we have is the way that we look at the world and the way that we understand it. And so if we if that kind of slips out of our grasp, what are we left with? I mean, are we building our sense of self just from our perception of how we relate to everything around us. I don't know. Yeah, possibly, eh? Yeah, what are we left with if we don't have a reality? Isn't that what basically the topic of constructivism? Like, <laughs> nothing's real. <laughs> uh, like, mm, well, I mean, like social construction? No, like the notion of your reality is completely constructed. So you can't be sure if there is any objective reality that is actually true. And so then the only thing that you do have is your constructed reality. And if you don't have that, or if you doubt that, that's scary. Another, I think, very interesting question that this story brings up is um, the idea that, I mean, does that sound of the, the old man's heart beating under the floorboards, does that really exist? Or is it in his mind uh, just a kind of paranoid or guilty construct because it's a kind of moral imperative that he's hearing that and and being f compelled to confess? Right. That's the interesting thing about it, though, is because cause I was thinking about that, too. I was like, is it the guilt that's, that's sort of causing him to hear the, the heart beating? But from the way that he frames it, it doesn't seem that it could be guilt just because I don't know. I mean, he talks about he, the way that he frames it at the beginning doesn't seem as though he's doing it with any moral compass in mind. That being said, he does say that he loves the man, right? So, but that doesn't seem to impact wanting to kill him or he doesn't seem to have any regret at all. In fact, he's sort of boasting of how easy it was for him to do it. And how well he could do it, how perfectly he could do it, too. Yeah, he's justifying it, like, 
despite loving the man, he's like, just the eye. I hated the eye, so I had to do it. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it isn't guilt. Maybe it's just paranoia. That's true. But, I mean, paranoia maybe is just a manifestation of some kind of guilt. I think, well, there's an interesting take on this from everyone's favorite TV show, The Simpsons. Uh, they <laughs> did, uh, yeah. they kind of took this story. In the first and, season, I yeah, think. Yeah, with the, uh, with a, a diorama. <laughs> and <laughs> it was really amazing. <laughs> but I think their kind of reading of it uh, was certainly that it was the guilt factor. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bart was guilty. Oh, so him. guilty. Yeah, yeah. We have this thing that it says here, my rotten mind can't be found out. Like, maybe he's not worried about being found out as a killer. Maybe he's worried about being found out as an insane person. I mean... But he is diagnosed at the start, hey? Yeah. So he's like, I'm already found out as that. But a lot of the story seems as though it's an attempt to prove his sanity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think he's saying... You're going to think I'm mad, but I'm not. Yeah. Listen how how calm, how calm I can be and how uh, rational. I think that's what he's trying to prove more than anything, that he can be rational. And maybe he's proving that to himself because he feels out of control of his mind. And what else can you do but try and cling on to rationality? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think it's... I mean, I think it's an interesting sort of the way that he's associating rationality with sanity. But then when you actually take that to its extreme, where he's saying, look how perfect I can execute this murder. Um, intuitively, one thinks, oh, that that's just like further proof that he is insane. Mm. You know, the more rational, the more like reasoned he is, it's the more like... This guy's crazy. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well picked up on that. Rationality isn't doesn't doesn't equal sanity. Yeah. Um I'm I'm like done with the telltale heart. You wanna go psychosis? Yeah, let's let's do it. This is Psychosis by Matt Demersky from Creepypasta. Sunday. I'm not sure why I'm writing this down on paper, not on my computer. I guess I've just noticed some odd things. It's not that I don't trust the computer. I just need to organize my thoughts. I need to get down all the details somewhere objective. Somewhere I know that what I write can't be deleted or changed. Not that that's happened. It's just everything blurs together here. And the fog of memory lends a strange cast to things. I'm starting to feel cramped in this small apartment. Maybe that's the problem. I just had to go and choose the cheapest apartment, the only one in the basement. The lack of windows down here makes day and night seem to slip by seamlessly. I haven't been out in a few days because I've been working on this programming project so intensely. I suppose I just wanted to get it done. Hours of sitting and staring at a monitor can make anyone feel strange, I know. But I don't think that's it. I'm not sure when I first started to feel like something was odd. I can't even define what it is. Maybe I just haven't talked to anyone in a while. That's the first thing that crept up on me. Everyone I normally talk to online while I program has been idle or they've simply not logged on at all. My instant messages go unanswered. The last email I got from anybody was a friend saying he'd talk to me when he got back from the store, and that was yesterday. 
I'd call with my cell phone, but reception's terrible down here. Yeah, that's it. I just need to call someone. I'm gonna go outside. Well, that didn't work so well. As the tingle of fear fades, I'm feeling a little ridiculous for being scared at all. I looked in the mirror before I went out, but I didn't shave the two-day stubble I've grown. I figured I was just going out for a quick cell phone call. I did change my shirt, though, because it was lunchtime and I guessed that I'd run into at least one person I knew. That didn't end up happening. I wish it did. When I went out, I opened the door to my small apartment slowly. A small feeling of apprehension had somehow already lodged itself in me for some indefinable reason. I chalked it up to having not spoken to anyone but myself for a day or two. I peered down the dingy grey hallway, made dingier by the fact that it was a basement hallway. On one end, a large metal door led to the building's furnace room. It was locked, of course. Two dreary soda machines stood by it. I bought a soda from one the first day I moved in, but it had a two-year-old expiration date. I'm fairly sure nobody knows those machines are even down here, or my cheap landlady just doesn't care to get them restocked. I closed my door softly and walked the other direction, taking care not to make a sound. I have no idea why I chose to do that, but it was fun giving in to the strange impulse not to break the droning hum of the soda machines, at least for the moment. I got to the stairwell and took the stairs up to the building's front door. I looked through the heavy door's small square window and received quite the shock. It was definitely not lunchtime. City gloom hung over the dark street outside and the traffic lights at the intersection in the distance blinked yellow. Dim clouds, purple and black from the glow of the city, hung overhead. Nothing moved, save for the few sidewalk trees that shifted in the wind. I remember shivering, though it wasn't cold. Maybe it was the wind outside. I could vaguely hear it through the heavy metal door, and I knew it was that unique kind of late-night wind, the kind that was constant, cold and quiet, save for the rhythmic music it made as it passed through countless unseen tree leaves. I decided not to go outside. Instead, I lifted my cell phone to the door's little window and checked the signal meter. The bars filled up the meter and I smiled. Time to hear someone else's voice, I remember thinking, relieved. It was such a strange thing to be afraid of nothing. I shook my head, laughing at myself silently. I hit speed dial for my best friend Amy's number and held the phone up to my ear. It rang once, but then it stopped. Nothing happened. I listened to silence for a good twenty seconds, then hung up. I frowned and looked at the signal meter again, still full. I went to dial her number again, but then my phone rang in my hand, startling me. I put it up to my ear. Hello? I asked, immediately fighting down a small shock at hearing the first spoken voice in days, even if it was my own. I had gotten used to the droning hum of the building's inner workings, my computer and the soda machines in the hallway. There was no response to my greeting at first, but then, finally, a voice came. Hey! said a clear male voice, obviously of college age, like me. Who's this? John, I replied, confused. Oh, sorry, wrong number, he replied and hung up. I lowered the phone slowly and leaned against the thick brick wall of the stairwell. That was strange. I looked at my received calls list, but the number was unfamiliar. Before I could think on it further, the phone rang loudly, shocking me yet again. This time I looked at the caller before I answered. It was another unfamiliar number. This time, I held the phone up to my ear but said nothing. I heard nothing but the general background noise of a phone. Then, a familiar voice broke my tension. John? What's the single word in Amy's voice? I breathed a sigh of relief. Hey, it's you, I replied. Who else would it be, she responded. Ah, oh, the number. I'm at a party on 7th Street and my phone died just as you called me. This is someone else's phone, obviously. Oh, okay, I said. Where are you? 
she asked. My eyes glanced over the drab, whitewashed cylinder block walls and the heavy metal door with its small window. At my building, I sighed. Just feeling cooped up, I didn't realize it was so late. You should come down here, she said, laughing. Nah, I don't feel like looking for some strange place by myself in the middle of the night, I said, looking out the window at the silent, windy street that secretly scared me just a tiny bit. I think I'm just going to keep working or go to, go to bed. Nonsense, she replied. I can come get you. Your building is close to 7th Street, right? How drunk are you? I asked, lightheartedly. You know where I live. Oh, of course, she said abruptly. I guess I can't get there by walking, huh? You could if you wanted to waste half an hour, I told her. Right, she said. Okay, gotta go. Good luck with your work. I lowered the phone once more, looking at the numbers flash as the call ended. Then the droning silence suddenly reasserted itself in my ears. The two strange calls in the eerie street outside just drove home my aloneness in this empty stairwell. Perhaps from having seen too many scary movies, I had the sudden inexplicable idea that something could look in the door's window and see me, some sort of horrible entity that hovered at the edge of aloneness, just waiting to creep up on unsuspecting people that strayed too far from other human beings. I knew the fear was irrational, but nobody else around, so... I jumped down the stairs, ran down the hallway into my room and closed the door as swiftly as I could while still staying silent. Like I said, I feel a little ridiculous for being scared of nothing, and the fear has already faded. Writing this down helps a lot. It makes me realize that nothing is wrong. It filters out half-formed thoughts and fears and leaves only cold hard facts. It's late, I got a call from a wrong number, and Amy's phone died, so she called me back from another number. Nothing strange is happening. Still, there was something a little off about that conversation. I know it could have just been the alcohol she'd had. Or was it even her that seemed off to me? Or was it... Yes, that was it. I didn't realize it until this moment, writing these things down. I knew writing things down would help. She said she was at a party, but I only heard silence in the background. Of course, that doesn't mean anything in particular, as she could have just gone outside to make the call. No. That couldn't be it either. I didn't hear the wind. I need to see if the wind is still blowing. Monday. I forgot to finish writing last night. I'm not sure what I expected to see when I ran up the stairwell and looked out the heavy metal door's window. I'm feeling ridiculous. Last night's fear seems hazy and unreasonable to me now. I can't wait to go out into the sunlight. I'm going to check my email, shave, shower, and finally get out of here. Wait, I think I heard something. It was thunder. That whole sunlight and fresh air thing didn't happen. I went out into the stairwell and up the stairs only to find disappointment. The heavy metal door's little window showed only flowing water as torrential rain slammed against it. Only a very dim, gloomy light filtered in through the rain. But at least I knew it was daytime, even if it was a grey, sickly, wet day. I tried looking out the window and waiting for lightning to illuminate the gloom, but the rain was too heavy and I couldn't make out anything more than vague, weird shapes moving at odd angles in the waves washing down the window. Disappointed, I turned around, but I didn't want to go back to my room. Instead, I wandered further up the stairs, past the first floor and the second. The stairs ended at the third floor, the highest floor in the building. I looked through the glass that ran up the outer wall of the stairwell, but it was that warped, thick kind that scatters the light. Not that there was much to see through the rain to begin with. I opened the stairwell door and wandered down the hallway. The ten or so thick wooden doors, painted blue a long time ago, were all closed. 
I listened as I walked, but it was the middle of the day, so I wasn't surprised that I heard nothing but the rain outside. As I stood there in the dim hallway listening to the rain, I had the strange, fleeting impression that the doors were standing like silent granite monoliths erected by some ancient forgotten civilization for some unfathomable guardian purpose. Lightning flashed, and I could have sworn that for just a moment the old grainy blue wood looked just like rough stone. I laughed at myself for letting my imagination get the best of me. But then it occurred to me that the dim gloom and lightning must mean there was a window somewhere in the hallway. A vague memory surfaced, and I suddenly recalled that the third floor had an alcove and an inset window halfway down the floor's hallway. Excited to look out into the rain and possibly see another human being, I quickly walked over to the alcove, finding the large, thin glass window. Rain washed down it, as with the front door's window. But I could open this one. I reached a hand out to slide it open, but hesitated. I had the strangest feeling that if I opened that window, I would see something absolutely horrifying on the other side. Everything's been so odd lately. So I came up with a plan, and I came back here to get what I needed. I don't seriously think that anything will come of it, but I'm bored, it's raining, and I'm going stir-crazy. I came back to get my webcam. The cord isn't long enough to reach the third floor by any means, so instead I'm going to hide it between the two soda machines in the dark end of my basement hallway, run the wire along the wall and under my door, and put black duct tape over the wire to blend it in with the black plastic strip that runs along the base of the hallway's walls. I know this is silly, but I don't have anything better to do. Well, nothing happened. I propped open the hallway to stairwell door, steeled myself, then flung the heavy front door wide open and ran like hell down the stairs to my room and slammed the door. I watched the webcam on my computer intently, seeing the hallway outside my door and most of the stairwell. I'm watching it right now and I don't see anything interesting. I just wish the camera's position was different so that I could see out the front door. Oh hey, somebody's online. I got out an older, less functional webcam that I had in my closet to video chat with my friend online. I couldn't really explain to him why I wanted to video chat, but it felt good to see another person's face. He couldn't talk very long and we didn't talk about anything meaningful, but I feel much better. My strange fear has almost passed. I would feel completely better, but there was something odd about our conversation. I know that I've said that everything has seemed odd, but still, he was very vague with his responses. I can't recall one specific thing that he said, no particular name or place or event, but he did ask for my email address to keep in touch. Oh wait, I just got an email. I'm about to go out. I just got an email from Amy that asked me to meet her for dinner at the place we usually go to. I do love pizza and I've just been eating random food from the poorly stocked fridge for days, so I can't wait. Again, I feel ridiculous about the odd couple of days I've been having. I should destroy this journal when I get back. Oh, another email. Oh my god. I almost left the email and opened the door. I almost opened the door. I almost opened the door, but I read the email first. It was from a friend I hadn't heard from in a long time, and it was sent to a huge number of emails that must have been every person he had saved in his address list. It had no subject. It said simply, Seen with your own eyes. Don't trust them. They. What the hell is that supposed to mean? The words shock me, and I keep going over and over them. Is it a desperate email sent just as... Something happened? The words are obviously cut off without finishing. On any other day, I would have dismissed this as a spam from a computer virus or something. But the words, seen with your own eyes. I can't help but read over this journal and think back on the last few days and realize that I have not seen another person with my own eyes or talked to another person face to face. The webcam conversation with my friend was so strange, so vague, so eerie now that I think about it. Was it eerie? 
or is the fear clouding my memory? My mind toys with the progression of events I've written here, pointing out that I have not been presented with one single fact that I did not specifically give out unsuspectingly. The random wrong number that got my name at the subsequent strange return call from Amy, the friend that asked for my email address. I messaged him first when I saw him online. And then I got my first email a few minutes after that conversation. Oh my god, that phone call with Amy. I said over the phone, I said that I was within half an hour's walk of 7th Street. They know I'm near there. What if they're trying to find me? Where is everyone else? Why haven't I seen or heard anyone in days? No, no, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. I need to calm down. This madness needs to end. I don't know what to think. I ran about my apartment furiously, holding my cell phone up to every corner to see if it got a signal through the heavy walls. Finally, in the tiny bathroom near one ceiling corner, I got a single bar. Holding my phone there, I sent a few text messages to every number in my list. Not wanting to betray anything about my unfounded fears, I simply sent, You seen anybody face to face lately? At that point, I just wanted any reply back. I didn't care what the reply was or if I embarrassed myself. I tried to call someone a few times, but I couldn't get my head up high enough. And if I brought my cell phone down even an inch, I lost signal. Then I remembered the computer and rushed over to it. Most were idle away from their computer. Nobody responded. My messages grew more frantic and I started telling people where I was and to stop by in person for a host of barely passable reasons. I didn't care about anything at that point. I just needed to see another person. I also tore apart my apartment looking for something that I might have missed. Some way to contact another human being without opening the door. I know it's crazy. I know it's unfounded. But what if? What if? I just need to be sure. I taped the phone to the ceiling in case. Tuesday. The phone rang. Exhausted from last night's rampage, I must have fallen asleep. I woke up to the phone ringing and ran into the bathroom, stood on the toilet and flipped open the phone taped to the ceiling. It was Amy and I feel so much better. She was really worried about me and apparently had been trying to contact me since the last time I talked to her. She's coming over now and yes, she knows where I am without me telling her. I feel so embarrassed. I'm definitely throwing this journal away before anyone sees it. I don't even know why I'm writing it now. Maybe it's just because it's the only communication I've had at all since... Well, God knows when. I look like hell, too. I looked in the mirror before I came back in here. My eyes are sunken, my stubble is thicker, and I just look generally unhealthy. My apartment is trash, but I'm not going to clean it up. I think I need someone else to see what I've been through. These past few days have not been normal. I'm not one to imagine things. I know I've been the victim of extreme probability. I probably missed seeing another person a dozen times. I just happened to go out when it was late at night or the middle of the day when everyone was gone. Everything's perfectly fine, I know this now. Plus, I found something in the closet last night that has helped me tremendously. A television. I set it up just before I wrote this and it's on in the background. Television has always been an escape for me and it reminds me that there's a world beyond these dingy brick walls. I'm glad Amy's the only one that responded to me after last night's frantic pestering of everyone I could contact. She's been my best friend for years. She doesn't know it, but I count the day that I met her among one of the few moments of true happiness in my life. I remember that warm summer day fondly. It seems a different reality from this dark, rainy, lonely place. I feel like I spent days sitting in that playground, much too old to play, just talking with her and hanging around, doing nothing at all. I still feel like I can go back to that moment sometimes, and it reminds me that this damn place is not all there is. Finally, a knock on the door. I thought it was odd that I couldn't see her through the camera I hid between the two soda machines. I figured that it was bad positioning, like when I couldn't see out the front door. I should have known. I should have known. After the knock, I yelled through the door jokingly that I had a camera between the soda machines because I was embarrassed myself that I had taken this paranoia so far. After I did that, I saw her image walk over to the camera and look down at it. She smiled and waved. Hey, 
she said to the camera brightly, giving me a wry look. It's weird, I know, I said into the mic attached to my computer. I've had a weird few days. Must have, she replied. Open the door, John. I hesitated. How could I be sure? Hey, humor me for a second here, I told her through the mic. Tell me one thing about us, just to prove to me you're you. She gave the camera a weird look. Um, all right, she said slowly, thinking. We met randomly at a playground when we were both way too old to be there. I sighed deeply as reality returned and fear faded. God, I've been so ridiculous. Of course it was Amy. The day wasn't anywhere in the world except in my memory. I'd never even mentioned it to anyone, not out of embarrassment, but out of a strange secret nostalgia and a longing for those days to return. If there was some unknown force that were trying to trick me, as I feared, there was no way they could know about that day. <laughs> All right, I'll explain everything, I told her. Be right there. I ran to my small bathroom and fixed my hair as best I could. I looked like hell, but she would understand. Snickering at my own unbelievable behavior and the mess I'd made of the place, I walked to the door. I put my hand on the doorknob and gave the mess one last look. So ridiculous, I thought. My eyes traced over the half-eaten food lying on the ground, the overflowing trash bin, and the bed I tipped to the side looking for. God knows what. I almost turned to the door and opened it, but my eyes fell on one last thing. The old webcam, the one I used for that eerily vacant chat with my friend. Its silent black sphere lay haphazardly tossed to the side. Its lens pointed at the table where this journal lay. An overwhelming terror took me as I realized that if something could see through that camera, it would have seen what I just wrote about that day. I asked her for any one thing about us, and she chose the only thing in the world that I thought they or it did not know. But it did! It did! It did know! It could have been watching me the whole time! I didn't open the door. I screamed. I screamed in uncontrollable terror. I stomped on the old webcam on the floor. The door shook and the doorknob tried to turn, but I didn't hear Amy's voice through the door. Was the basement door made to keep our drafts too thick? Or was Amy not outside? What could have been trying to get in if not her? What the hell is out there? I saw her on my computer through the camera outside. I heard her on the speakers through the camera outside. But was it real? How can I know? She's gone now. I screamed and shouted for help. I piled up everything in my apartment against the front door. Friday. At least I think that it's Friday. I broke everything electronic. I smashed my computer to pieces. Every single thing that could have been accessed by network access, or worse, altered. I'm a programmer. I know. Every little piece of information I gave out since this started. My name, my email, my location. None of it came back from outside until I gave it out. I've been going over and over what I wrote. I've been pacing back and forth, alternating between stark terror and overpowering disbelief. Sometimes I'm absolutely certain some phantom entity is dead set on the single goal of getting me to go outside. Back to the beginning with the phone call from Amy. She was effectively asking me to open the door and go outside. I keep running through it in my head. One point of view says I've acted like a madman, and all of this is the extreme convergence of probability. Never going outside at the right times by pure luck. Never seeing another person by pure chance. Getting a random nonsense email from some computer virus at just the right time. The other point of view says that extreme convergence of probability is the reason that whatever's out there hasn't gotten me already. I keep thinking, I never opened the window on the third floor. I never opened the front door until that incredibly stupid stunt with the hidden camera after which I ran straight to my room and slammed the door. I haven't opened my own solid door since I flung open the front door of the building. Whatever's out there, if anything's out there, never made an appearance in the building before I opened the front door. Maybe the reason it wasn't in the building already was that it was elsewhere getting everyone else. And then it waited until I betrayed my existence by trying to call Amy. A call which didn't work until it called me and asked me my name. Terror literally overwhelms me every time I try to fit the pieces of this nightmare together. That email, short, cut off. Was it from someone trying to get word out? 
some friendly voice desperately trying to warn me before it came. Seen with my own eyes, don't trust them. Exactly what I've been so suspicious of. It could have masterful control of all things electronic, practicing its insidious deception to trick me into coming outside. Why can't it get in? It knocked on the door. It must have some solid presence. The door. The image of those doors in the upper hallway as guardian monoliths flashes back in my mind every time I trace this path of thoughts. If there's some phantom entity trying to get me to go outside, maybe it can't get through doors. I keep thinking back over all the books I've read or movies I've seen, trying to generate some explanation for this. Doors have always been such intense foci of human imagination, always seen as wards or portals of special importance. Or perhaps the door is just too thick? I know that I couldn't bash through any of the doors in this building, let alone the heavy basement ones. Aside from that, the real question is, why does it even want me? If it just wanted to kill me, it could do it in any number of ways, including just waiting until I starve to death. What if it doesn't want to kill me? What if it has some far more horrific fate in store for me? God, what can I do to escape this nightmare? And knock on the door. I told the people on the other side of the door I need a minute to think, and I'll come out. I'm really just writing this down so I can figure out what to do. At least this time I heard their voices. My paranoia, and yes, I recognize them being paranoid, has me thinking of all sorts of ways that their voices could be faked electronically. There could be nothing but speakers outside simulating human voices. Did it really take them three days to come talk to me? Amy is supposedly out there, along with two policemen and a psychiatrist. Maybe it took them three days to think of what to say to me. The psychiatrist's claim could be pretty convincing if I decided to think this has all been a crazy misunderstanding and not some entity trying to trick me into opening the door. The psychiatrist had an older voice, authoritarian but still caring. I liked it. I'm desperate just to see someone with my own eyes. He said I have something called cyberpsychosis, and I'm just one of a nationwide epidemic of thousands of people having breakdowns triggered by a suggestive email that got through somehow. I swear he said, got through somehow. I think he means spread throughout the country inexplicably, but I am incredibly suspicious that the entity slipped up and revealed something. He said I'm part of a wave of emergent behavior, that a lot of other people are having the same problem with the same fears, even though we've never communicated. That neatly explains the strange email about eyes that I got. I didn't get the original triggering email. I got a descendant of it. My friend could have broken down too, and tried to warn everyone he knew against his paranoid fears. That's how the problem spreads, the psychiatrist claims. I could have spread it too, with my text and instant messages online to everybody I know. One of those people might be melting down right now after being triggered by something I sent them, something they might interpret any way that they want. Something like a text saying, seen anyone face to face lately? The psychiatrist told me that he didn't want to lose another one, that people like me are intelligent and that's our downfall. We draw connections so well that we draw them even when they shouldn't be there. He said it's easy to get caught up in paranoia in our fast-paced world, a constantly changing place where more and more of our interaction is simulated. I have to give him one thing. It's a great explanation. It neatly explains everything. It perfectly explains everything, in fact. I have every reason to shake off this nightmarish fear that something or consciousness of being out there wants me to open the door so it can capture me for some horrible fate worse than death. It would be foolish, after hearing that explanation, to stay in here until I starve to death just to spite the entity that might have got everyone else. It would be foolish to think that, after hearing that explanation, I might be one of the last people left alive in an empty world, hiding in my secure basement room, spiting some unthinkable deceptive entity just by refusing to be captured. It's a perfect explanation for every single strange thing I've seen or heard, and I have every reason in the world to let all of my fear go and open the door. That's exactly why I'm not going to. How can I be sure? 
How can I know what's real and what's deception? All of these damn things with their wires and their signals that originate from some unseen origin, they're not real. I can't be sure. Signals through a camera, faked video, deceptive phone calls, emails, even the television lying broken on the floor. How, how can I possibly know it's real? It's just signals, waves, light, the door. It's bashing on the door, it's trying to get in. What insane mechanical contrivance could it be using to simulate the sound of men attacking the heavy wood so well? At least I'll finally see it with my own eyes. There's nothing left in here for it to deceive me with. I've ripped apart everything else. It can't deceive my eyes, can it? See him with your own eyes. Don't trust them, they. Wait, was that desperate message telling me to trust my eyes? Or warning me about my eyes, too? Oh my god, what's the difference between a camera and my eyes? They both turn light into electrical signals. They're the same. I can't be deceived. I have to be sure. I have to be sure. Date unknown. I calmly asked for a paper and a pen day in and day out, until it finally gave them to me. Not that it matters. What am I going to do? Poke my eyes out? The bandages feel like part of me now. The pain is gone. I figure this will be one of my last chances to write legibly as, without my sight to correct mistakes, my hands will slowly forget the motions involved. This is a sort of self-indulgence, this writing. It's a relic of another time. Because I'm certain everyone left in the world is dead, or something far worse. I sit against the padded wall day in and day out. The entity brings me food and water. It masks itself as a kind nurse, as an unsympathetic doctor. I think it knows that my hearing has sharpened considerably now that I live in darkness. It fakes conversations in the hallways, on the off chance that I might overhear. One of the nurses talks about having a baby soon. One of the doctors lost his wife in a car accident. None of it matters. None of it is real. None of it gets to me. Not like she does. That's the worst part. The part I almost can't handle. The thing comes to me masquerading as Amy. Its recreation is perfect. It sounds exactly like Amy. Feels exactly like her. It even produces a reasonable facsimile of tears that it makes me feel on its lifelike cheeks. When it first dragged me here, it told me all the things I wanted to hear. It told me that she loved me, that she had always loved me, that it didn't understand why I did this, that we could still have a life together, if only I would stop insisting that I was being deceived. It wanted me to believe. No, it needed me to believe that she was real. I almost fell for it. I really did. I doubted myself for the longest time. In the end, though, it was all too perfect, too flawless, and too real. The false Amy used to come every day, and then every week, and finally stopped coming altogether. But I don't think the entity will give up. I think the waiting game is just another one of its gambits. I will resist it for the rest of my life if I have to. I don't know what happened to the rest of the world, but I do know that this thing needs me to fall for its deceptions. If it needs that, then maybe, just maybe, I'm a thorn in its agenda. Maybe Amy is still alive out there somewhere, kept alive only by my will to resist the deceiver. I hold on to that hope, rocking back and forth in my cell to pass time. I will never give in. I will never break. I am a hero. The doctor read the paper the patient had scribbled on. It was barely readable, written in the shaky script of one who could not see. He wanted to smile at the man's steadfast resolve, a reminder of the human will to survive, but he knew that the patient was completely delusional. After all, a sane man would have fallen for the deception long ago. The doctor wanted to smile. He wanted to whisper words of encouragement to the delusional man. He wanted to scream, but the nerve filaments wrapped around his head and into his eyes made him do otherwise. His body walked into the cell like a puppet and told the patient once more that he was wrong and that there was nobody trying to deceive him. Well, I mean, it's quite a contrast to the Telltale Heart because this is 
I mean, so much about our lives today, the kind of lives that we live, one hand on our smartphone constantly. What did you say? Sorry, I was just looking at that on my smartphone. Who <laughs> <laughs> was talking about um about how like if aliens looked down on us today, they would think that our cell phones are like a breathing device. What is it? What is it? Creepy pasta? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I read some of the comments, and there are a couple of people who were saying. This is really relatable. I can totally see this being me. I felt the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think probably a lot of people, a lot of, you know, freelancers especially, people who sit in front of their computers alone because they don't want to, you know, buy a coffee at a cafe or don't have another office to work at. (laughs) A lot of people find themselves in that situation. I think so too. I think I personally really dislike working from home because it makes me feel like i haven't left the house is anything even real (laughs) (laughs) what time is it okay here's a right at the start it says somewhere there's a sentence that says doors have always been such an intense focus of human imagination and there's kind of a transition within the story where at first the doors um, seem to be locking him in and he feels like locked in can't get out kind of wants to get out weather is shit can't get out and then in the end the door is what's protecting him from his imaginative enemy that's trying to you know fool him into coming out the door is the only thing that protects him so it goes from like oppressor to protector within that story right yeah and i think that's the interesting thing with the the technology as well that I mean, we could say that this is why it's so scary that we're we're not connecting with people. We're not seeing each other face to face. It's kind of what he's wondering about. But actually, the fact that he was sort of tucked away in this little nook, that's the only thing that saves him. That's what that makes him survive. That's why he's, you know, still holding on. In his mind, at least, it's the thing that makes him survive. In everybody else's mind, presumably, um, if he would just open the door, he'd be fine. Yeah, but we know that that's not true because of the end of the story. It's not just in his head, it's real. Yeah, but I mean, I think this raises the question of about whether, I mean, what what's sort of the better reality, right? I mean, whether it's better to live in truth but live alone. Mm. <laughs> you know, with your literally your like physiological needs being passed to you under a door, um, or whether you know go out there and uh, you know play the game and be a part of the a part of the a part of the delusion and possibly compromise yourself for it. Yeah, yeah, but maybe sometimes it is better to just buy into the delusion and just have that those small moments of like happiness that maybe you'll get from the connection with another human being, even if that's false. Mm. Maybe that's better. Terrifying. That's That, I think, is truly terrifying. Yeah. We don't know, and that maybe we can't have... Maybe all of those connections between people are meaningless anyway. Maybe we can't trust what anyone else is thinking at any point. And we can't trust our own feelings. 
That's scary. No need to trust <laughs> anyone, you know, just roll with it. It's life. It's <laughs> going to be over soon enough. It's <laughs> like, don't stress. Yeah, but it's the same thing of if all we have is our own perception, yeah. then you can't just roll with it. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, we, I mean, I think intuitively, yes, we do only have our own perception. But, yeah, I think it's worth considering what our own is. And I don't know, I think that so many of our ideas and perceptions are very much, like, shared. And, you know, going back to what's constructed, I mean... Like, I mean, to just so many of our ideas and our goals and our, the basis of our motivations and our ideas are, are actually shared, right? So. Totally. Mm. You know, talking about constructing things again, it's not only that um, he can't be sure if anything's real because it's being delivered to him through technology, like through his email and his mobile phone. And through his webcam. But also, he says at one point, my name, my email, my location, none of it came back from the outside until I gave it out. So it's like he's sending out these signals and he's probably imagining just shooting these signals into like a void where there's no one and it's just these signals reflect back to him somehow. And so he's kind of doubting if there's anyone out there at all. No one computes any of the information that he's giving out. No one, like, there's no one to bounce ideas with, basically. That's fucking terrifying. That is, like, the lonely thing. Yeah. So lonely. Right. Is his fear is that there's no, no one receiving what he's sending out? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Although, how does this relate to his fear at the end of being lured out of his room? Because then he must think there's something out there. Yeah, he seems to be scared that something's gonna get him and it's interesting too because he has kind of almost a hero complex which maybe is being proved right but maybe not and and that's kind of interesting in the same way uh that maybe the kind of the narrator from uh the telltale heart he has this same idea of kind of like delusions of grandeur or something that they are giving so much meaning to themselves and maybe that's just a reaction against not being sure of their perception anymore, which is pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if this is a good, good, good thing to say next after that statement, but um, it is really the whole thing like a kind of scarier, less, it seems like a normal life, Truman show. Like everything around him is built to like fool him into believing that he needs to come out of this room or whatever, right? Is it different to Truman Show? Mm, well, I think the Truman Show, it's similar in ways that uh, it's about not being able to trust what's going on around you. I think that's the key point, that uh, whatever the motives are of setting up whatever's going on around you, if it's not authentic or, or real or as you think it should be, that you feel that you're being manipulated or that you just can't trust what's happening. Yeah, you feel like you're an idiot believing this was real. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one thing that I picked up on, just you reminded me when you said idiot, how often he uses the word ridiculous. 
Did you notice that? I mean, I, I don't... <laughs> he would be like, the situation is ridiculous. Oh, God, this is it's so ridiculous. Um, I'm being so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm being ridiculous, but... Right. I mean... It was. I just. It struck me how often he said that, and perhaps it's just like a personal choice of the author. But yeah, I mean, there's that layer of absurdity that plays into ridiculousness. Like this is absurd, and yeah, it's self-reflexive too. Like I'm being foolish, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He kind of realizes that what he's doing isn't like normal, mm -hmm. but he also can't ignore the hints of, like, maybe something else is the truth. Namely, that it's all set up around me. Mm -hmm. And there's this evil that's trying to get me. You know, he can he can reason either way, and he wants to just kind of be sure that the... I guess, you know? Like, he wants to be sure that this... Um, like, he doesn't know what's real, but he's just exploring this scary... Everything around him is set up. Right. Reality. Because he has hints that allude to that being real. Yeah, and I think, I suppose that reaches its crescendo when he uh, starts thinking that he can't even trust his own eyes. Um, and so it's not even that he can't trust what technologically is coming towards him, but he can't trust his senses other than his mind. And so he blinds himself. I mean, that's an extreme reaction, but it's kind of you can understand it in a weird way that you wouldn't want anything to cloud your judgment. But that's putting a whole lot of faith in your mind that maybe you can't trust either. I think that's super interesting that it, that he's like suspecting of his eyeballs of, of being um, wrong senses. Not only the technology anymore, but his eyeballs as well. So like maybe it isn't all that contemporary, this whole topic, but it's basically that's like what philosophy is dealing with a lot. It's just eyeballs. Like, what I'm seeing is it real or is it not right. real? You yeah, know, totally. Whether it's a webcam or an eyeball, it's really just the instrument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And right. when it's all yeah. computed, is your brain. So that's what you need to recede back into if you want to be really stripping it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you you very much get that. Um, yeah, there are a lot of little, like, philosophical elements in there. To expand. Well, just like, I mean, I don't even, I really don't even, I don't like Descartes, but you know, his whole thing about, it's like, doubt everything kind mm -hmm. of thing. And I was like, well, that's kind of what this guy's feeling. Um, and then the other aspect with, um, yeah, just him being in his, in his room and then having this webcam on the outside with the microphones or something, right? Yeah, and it, behind the vending machine. Yeah, it's this, yeah. I mean, it's this really interesting thing where he's kind of creating like um, like a wider self. Like he's he begins to like almost embody the room, and then um, you know, place his various forms of perception outside of the room as he encloses himself in. Right. I don't. I I did like a course on philosophy of mind, but I'm definitely not an expert on it. Um, but John Cyril did um, this, this like thought experiment called the China, the Chinese Room, um, where there's one person on one side and an, another presumed individual on the other side, 
they're transmitting messages to each other in Chinese. But the the question is whether or not the person on the other side of the room actually knows Chinese or is just able to sort of put together the words, the language symbols in order to convey the message, but does, isn't actually capable of speaking Chinese themselves kind of thing. Anyway, the relation to this story basically is that especially the part where he's trying to evaluate whether it's actually Amy on the other side. He's like trying to ask these questions about um, like, what's this one thing that the one you memory. and I yeah, would both know. And then he's like, Oh, well, like there's a, my webcam could have seen it on my, you know, so it's just like how much of it, it's just memory, like codes that are learned. And mm-hmm. I think that, that was, yeah, just uncomputed signals being sent back. Yeah. From the void. Loneliness. I realize that's probably the most terrifying thing. Not a person under my bed. Utter loneliness. Yeah. That there's no one under the bed. And there's no one anywhere ever. That's the scariest. I mean, I think that's why we asked this question, though. Because in t- on the one hand, we'd be like, yes, obviously it's best to like live in truth. But, I mean, no one wants to like live alone in a room kind of thing. I don't. I don't. <laughs> no does that exist that someone really wants that well i mean they're i mean hermits right yeah you got something scary to tell us like a scary story of yours a personal one okay i do have kind of a scary experience but um okay so i when i was in in high school i took the bus home and um there's like a certain route um and the brief walk in between the or along the brief walk from the bus stop to my house, there's this one house that um, it's kind of just like people don't really, it's kind of, no one really knows who lives in there. It's kind of like a, but it's not really scary. It's like, oh, it's probably like a bunch of students or like a bunch of people don't really know. Um, in any case, I was walking home one day and there was, um, it was winter time. And so there was this person in front of me who was walking ahead of me he was hooded in this like kind of puffy jacket and i was like oh maybe that guy is coming from that weird house <laughs> possibly um but i didn't think of any anything of it um then upon sort of approaching the corner where i turned to go to my house he suddenly stopped and turned around and like and smiled at me he also looked like Kevin Spacey, which is, I think, to Kevin Spacey, so scary. And anyway, then I kind of was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, hand on my cell phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, t- anyway. Two digits I, already dialed? <laughs> yeah, nine, one. Question mark. Question mark. Could be one again. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, I turned the corner, and I kind of, I'm like, I'm like, my heart's beating really fast. And I like start like increasing my pace. Um, and he starts walking the opposite direction. And he's like, I like look back and he's watching me through the bushes. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh no. Yeah. It was, it was really scary. Um, that was, that was scary. I, and I went home and I was like, Ugh. 
I Did you call the coppers? No, I just I just went home. I think I told like my dad about it when he came home. Um and I and I stayed away from that route for a while. Oh my um, god. That's yeah. like seriously scary. Not being silly scary. That's fucking scary. Yeah. Anyway. So that was that was a, a scary thing that that happened. <laughs> Yeah, good one. So people really are the scariest <laughs> things of all. Maybe, maybe we do want a room to ourselves. Maybe, yeah. These guys are onto something. Do you guys know why Kevin Spacey is so scary? I don't have an answer. I just, I kind of am fascinated by like watching YouTube videos of him and stuff. And he's also so you can really see him performing, kind of thing. And I think that's the scary aspect of his is how performative he is. Yeah. That's what's unnerving yeah. that someone can be just like seeming not to be usual the usual suspect (laughs) Bella what's the theme for our next episode do we know um yeah we do because I was terrified so it's gonna be creatures we're doing it (gasps) we're doing it all right um Aaron Aaron before we um we finish this off is there anything you'd like to plug do you have a website uh yes I do um it's Aaron Liu art.com hey you know what we didn't talk about we should talk about it we should talk about your creepy art it's so dark (laughs) right yeah uh you can yeah you can take a gander on the on my website um because it's some art that i did when i was in in high school i'd say do you ever ever run into any trouble with your dark art um, I found out, um, like much later when I was in like second or third year university, I think, um, that my, through my brother, that my mom had asked my brother while I was in high school, whether there was like something going on in my life because my heart was so dark, but, um, <laughs> there was, no, there wasn't anything. It was just that I, I don't know. I think I thought that art required emotion and darkness and yes classic teenager Cla- yeah i was I was, a, I was just a classic teenager was any a goth phase um unfortunately i didn't have a goth phase oh. it's never too late yeah okay erin thank you so much for being a guest you were a fantastic guest thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and yeah i we also want to say good luck on your travels back to your homeland and come back to berlin soon yeah, I hope too. Yeah, we're actually really sad. I am as well. Sad and scared, the best combination. Ah, <sighs> the worst. If you have any feedback, anything to tell us, anything you liked or hated, especially things you didn't like actually because that's how we iterate. But also like maybe just love notes would be nice too. Oh, we love love notes. I love love any, notes. Any correspondence whatsoever. Go through ghoststoryreadingclub at gmail.com. Or you can uh, find us on Facebook. And we also have Tumblr. So, you know, that's going to be pretty cool. We'll post links to uh, Erin's art page and maybe some other crazy things too. All right. So tune into Creatures to hear Bella cry next episode. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry so much. It's going to be horrible. As you are, (laughs) listeners, we love you. Goodbye. Good night and good luck. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Hope there's no one under your bed. Check under your bed. 
send a text message to your friends to tell them that you're fine, but try not to set off a global crisis. And also check, like, just throw all the cupboards out. But if there's no one in your house, yeah, I don't know, maybe also be afraid because maybe no one exists in the world except you. So Such a, such a fine line. <laughs> okay, bye. 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 Ghosts.